if they try to suppress yields while inflation moves up this summer, uh, that's, I mean, that's rocket fuel for all these kind of scarce assets. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? Are you all doing well? What a crazy start to the year with Bitcoin. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got my regular monthly catch up on all things macro with the amazing Lynn Alden, where we discuss sovereign bonds, the trillion dollar market cap, Tesla getting into Bitcoin and so much more. It's been a wild month. But before we get into that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. So first up today, we're going to kick off with my newest sponsor, Ledger. Now, four years ago, when I first got into Bitcoin, the first hardware wallet I bought was a Nano S, and I'm still using that same device today. Now, you can also connect your Nano S to your Android phone so you can safely manage your Bitcoin on the go. I'm a big fan of the product, always have been, because it's so easy to use, not just the device itself, but also Ledger Live, the interface for safely managing your Bitcoin. Now, if you want to check Ledger out, head over to ledger.com, that is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And next up, we have Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. And also, it's the only place that I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. But why? Why, Pete? Well, Kraken is consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange. And as you know, security is really important to me. But they also have the best in class in customer service. So if you've got an issue, whatever it is, whoever you are, wherever you are, they're going to get that fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have all the tools you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app, so you can trade Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-M-P-R-O. And next up is BlockFi. Now, you will remember, back before Christmas and early this year, I was telling you about the imminent launch of their Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card. Well, now, the waitlist has been open to the public. Anyone, regardless of whether they are a BlockFi account holder or not, is eligible to join. So check this out. Card users will be able to earn a market-leading 1.5% rewards rate in Bitcoin on all card purchases. There is a $200 annual fee, but there's a $250 bonus after spending $3,000 in your first three months. With this card, you are going to be able to stack sats with all your card purchases. If you want to find out more, you need to head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, so onto the show, and Lynn is back, where we get into all things macro. I know you all love Lynn. I love Lynn. She's amazing. I learned so much with her. And so much has happened since last month when we last spoke. It seems crazy. It was only a month ago. But this is how things happen with Bitcoin. You know, the last few months have been crazy. I can't even record my interviews more than a day or two in advance at the moment. As so much is happening. Like I could record a show a week before like I did with Christian Carls. I had to record it again because of what happened with Tesla. It's crazy. Anyway, in the last month, Bitcoin has hit some pretty major milestones. First of all, there was the Tesla news. Bitcoin smashed through $50,000, which is massive on its own. But then just a couple of days later, it broke through 53700 and became a trillion dollar asset class for the first time. Now, $1 trillion is obviously a huge milestone. But the most interesting thing about it, what passing this milestone meant for Bitcoin. Now, I spoke to Travis Kling quite a while ago about this, and he said to me, there are a number of companies who can't even invest in Bitcoin until it breaks the trillion dollar market cap because at that point it de-risks it as an investment for them. 
So these institutions who bring this wall of money will now start looking at Bitcoin and be thinking, yeah, we can do this now. So look, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. We have dropped back down. We're back down at $46,000. So we're going to have to see how this does play out. But I'm bullish. I know you're bullish. We'll be back over a trillion dollars soon, right? Anyway, I do discuss all of this with Lynn. And look, if you've got any feedback on the show, if you want to reach out to me, you know you can. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I reply to everyone. I'm getting a lot of emails at the moment, like 30 a day at the moment, which is kind of wild. So if I do take a couple of days to get back to you, I am very sorry about that. Also, outside of that, head over to Defiance. We've got a couple of interesting things up there at the moment. We've got the most recent show, which is Hacking the Brain. And also we've got the trailer for our new series, Everyone Loves Britney, which is all about conservative ships. Also, sign up to my newsletter. That's at neveredit.com. That's your daily dose of Bitcoin, macro and tech. And outside of that, have a great weekend. I love you all and I will see you all next week. Actually, I'm going to see you all on Sunday. I've got a bonus show for you on Sunday. All about nodes with Shinobi. It's a cool one. Anyway, have a great weekend. Love you all. See you all soon. Lynn, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you back. Uh, we, we've got so much to discuss. So much. Has, I can't believe how much stuff has happened since we last spoke. I've, I've, you know, the basics I've got written down here. 50K Bitcoin, trillion dollar Bitcoin, Michael Saylor borrowing another billion, Tesla investing in Bitcoin, Stonebridge. I mean, there's so much to get through. It's been just a weird, I mean, just for me, because I only look at Bitcoin, it's been a weird month. It's, I don't think I've ever experienced a month like this, but you look at everything else. Is everything else crazy? Uh, yeah, probably the craziest thing outside of that is the bond market, the sovereign bond market. Have you been following that? Nope. You tell me. What's going on with the sovereign bond market? So yields are spiking in a in a way that is getting somewhat disorderly. Uh, and yeah, if you look at, uh, for example, the 10-year treasury, uh, that was pushing up nearly at 1.5% today. And so if you look back since it, where it was in August, it was back down at like 0.5%. And over the past uh, few weeks in particular, We've seen a global increase in sovereign bond yields. What's driving this? Uh, well, it's kind of rational because uh, for a while now, most of those sovereign bond yields were below the in, the expected inflation rate. Uh, both, mm -hmm. you know, the act, the measured inflation rate and the inflation rate that a lot of those markets are pricing in. Uh, and so now we're kind of getting this like sharp mean reversion where those yields are pushing up. And so that's going to test central banks around the world to see if they want to try to control the long end of the curve more than they're already doing. Because a lot of them, I mean, you know, most of them have like their major buyers are their central banks. And uh, but they're kind of only, you know, willing to buy a certain amount. Uh, so they don't look like they're just outright monetizing debt. Uh, so now some of the, the private market participants are kind of reasserting themselves and kind of driving yields up. And so we're going to kind of test a couple things. So, for example, Australia they have yield curve control on, uh, you know, uh, one of their, I forget what duration it is. It might be their three year or something like that, uh, or their three month. I, I forget which duration it is, but they have a specific target on one of their treasuries. Uh, and uh, so because it broke above that, they announced, uh, you know, a, a round of purchases to basically try to maintain that peg. And so there's there's eyes on, you know, what, what's the Fed going to do if, if they're kind of long and keeps pushing up. And it's getting pretty interesting because that that pushes down valuations of growth stocks, tech stocks. And so we've seen that kind of sharp uh, reversion where tech stocks are going down. And, you know, the reason I bring it up is because that has probably played a role in Bitcoin's correction. Uh, because when you get that sharp uptick in bond moves, you, you tend to get like a push down in a lot of these kind of duration assets. And Bitcoin has, you know, 
it, its overall correlation changes throughout the, the cycle. Sometimes it's correlated to the S and P 500. Sometimes it's anti-correlated to the dollar. Sometimes it's a liquidity play. Uh, but main, mainly, it's it's correlated to its own halving cycle, its own adoption cycle. But it can kind of have these these shorter term correlations. And so it seems to have been you know caught up in some of these these bond yields going up and growth stocks going down thing that's that's happening. It looks like it, it decoupled a little bit today, but overall, that that's certainly something I'm watching. All right, so uh, probably an easy question for you, but like, how are the rates on bond? How are the bond rates set? Does the central bank set them? Is it a market force? Uh, well, in theory, it's a market force. Yeah, and so basically, the way it works is that the central banks uh, they mostly set the short end of the curve. They they use uh, some of their operations to basically enforce you know the overnight lending rate. And then theoretically, all the all the sovereign all the yields from there, like as you get into three month and and two year and five year and ten year and thirty year, uh, those should all be set by the private market supply and demand. So the the, the you know the the governments sell them and whatever the market thinks is is prudent, they buy them. Now, in in recent years, ever since two thousand eight, that's been kind of you know not the case because some of the biggest buyers of those sovereign bonds are central banks. So central banks create new money and buy the the bonds associated with the government issuance. Uh, so, you know, basically, if you're the biggest buyer, you're obviously impacting price. Uh, now, it's not always it's not always the case where they push prices down. So, for example, if you look back in 2008 to 2014, it was an ironic case where whenever the Fed started buying more bonds, uh, yields actually went up. So, so bond prices, you know, went down. And that's kind of the inverse of what you'd think. But basically, they're they're providing liquidity to the system. But if they really want to go all out, they can suppress yields. And so, you know, that's why people are talking about yield curve control and things like that, which is, you know, the last time the Fed did that was the 1940s. And we're seeing it in a very minor way in Japan and Australia. Uh, we're seeing, for example, spread control in the ECB, where, where the, you know, it's kind of informal. They haven't really announced it, but basically they don't want Italian bond yields to get too much higher than, than German bond yields uh, you know, basically for the sake of fairness, and and so they're they're kind of targeting that like maybe one percent differential uh, to, to avoid a repeat of what they had happen in you know like this this the European sovereign bond crisis back in like 2012, and so it's it's really kind of a a, a kind of a turning point for markets because we're going to see how far central banks are willing to go to prevent their yields from rising too much and increasing their government funding costs. And so, for example, if you do yield curve control. Like if you go back to the 1940s, the Federal Reserve said, no, we're not going to let yields go above 2.5%. We're going to print money and buy any bonds that try to go above that percent. Mm-hmm. And so they, they can do that, but then the release valve is the currency. So they basically lose control of their balance sheet size. Uh, the currency you know, basically is taken out to the woodshed. And you have things like commodities scream higher because you, you go to deeper and deeper negative real yields. And so even even you know gold in particular would be the legacy asset that does really well in that environment after its recent correction. Uh, and so, but you know, Bitcoin also should if if they if they were to enact that, that should be great for Bitcoin. And but I'm kind of watching in the in the medium term because as yields go up, that can put pressure on a variety of these things. What is going on here, though? Is there anything like sinister? Like, what's your most simple explanation for somebody who is an economist who doesn't understand these things like you do? Like, is there something sinister going on here? Like, and and I'm going to lay that up with something else, right? And it might be not connected. Um, I've noticed recently over the last two weeks on Twitter, a lot of people are sharing passages from the book When Money Dies. There's a lot of that going on. It's a book I haven't read. I've got it on my Audible. I'm preparing because I've got to 
and basically started walking every day for an hour. And I'm going to go out later and I'm going to start listening to it. Is this anything to do with whereby... I, I seem to remember some of the passages people were sharing are things about if, as as a, as a currency is about to collapse, everything starts to get weird. Well, I think yeah, it, it depends on what you define as sinister. Uh, but basically, what we're seeing with this bond move is is theoretically rational. So bonds should pay a yield that is above the inflation rate. That that's how it's worked mm-hmm. for for most of history. Uh, and so if, if it's not working like that. That means that bondholders and especially cash holders, because they you know they have low yields too, are just getting killed on a real basis. Uh, and so it's natural for long, especially long duration bond yields, to try to push up above the inflation rate. Uh, and so that part's not sinister; that's totally normal. The problem is that if you have governments with 100% debt to GDP, or in some cases much higher, uh, you know they can't afford to pay two, three, four percent interest on their on their debt. They basically would would have a fiscal crisis. And so generally, you know, we talked about this before in these long-term debt cycles, Mm. they often end with a currency devaluation because any country that's that's a monetary sovereign, meaning that it it issues its own currency, there's virtually no cases of of them defaulting in nominal terms on their government debt. It just, you know, because they also issue their currency. So instead what they do is they'll, you know, they'll default in real terms. So they'll have inflation run higher than bond yields for quite a while and in something called financial repression. And it's really bad for bondholders and cash holders. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's the general path that we seem to be headed towards where the central banks uh, will, you know, basically uh, prevent that from ever kind of reflecting positive real yields. Now, but this is kind of the period where we're seeing that tested because that, you know, especially on, depending on what central bank you look at. I mean, the Federal Reserve as the, you know, the operator of the global reserve currency, they don't want to come out and say, we're monetizing federal deficits. Uh, we want to totally override the market. They're, they're, they're kind of using language, you know, kind of keep arm's length. And so the market's kind of calling their bluff and says, okay, we're going to jack yields up and see what you do. And so, uh, you know, we're going to get kind of I tested, I think. Yeah, later this year. I mean, it's happening a lot quicker than people thought. But basically, as we progress through months and, and this year, it's it's kind of going to be an interesting test. It's kind of the opposite of last year because last year we had this big deflationary shock. We had all this money thrown at it, and now we're kind of on the opposite side of that. We're getting the rebound. We're you know we're looking in this, you know hopefully later this year more and more reopenings and 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 you know people getting past this this virus and you know uptick in commodity prices, uh, more of these stimulus effects, kind of increasing money velocity and things like that. And that's where we test, okay, I mean, we can look at the governments and say, how are you feeling about two or three percent bond yields on your on your hundred and twenty percent debt to GDP? And so we'll see what happens. It's interesting. I was uh, I was interviewing Bellagi the other day and we were discussing the nation state case for Bitcoin adoption. I'm not sure if you've read his article about uh, his case for India to adopt Bitcoin. Um, it's brilliant. If you haven't, I'll send it to you. But as part of the conversation, he talked about the fact that he actually thinks currency wars we're approaching the stage of currency wars now. Um, increasingly, uh, countries are probably wanting to, some countries are perhaps wanting to get off the dollar as its reserve. Um, certainly, we're going to see pressure from China. Um, but also, we've got Bitcoin in the mix now. Is this, is this something you're expecting? Uh, yes, and that, you know, I covered that with the, uh, the article from a while ago called The Fraying of the U.S. Global Reserve uh, System. And mm-hmm. that went into Triffin's Dilemma and this whole issue. And it's it's a topic that I've been covering even before then, but that was kind of my complete thoughts on the on the matter. And so what we're seeing is a couple things. One is 
you know, for the past uh, almost 50 years, uh, we've been in the petrodollar system. And the way that works is that, you know, pretty much anywhere in the world, the only uh, currency you can use to buy oil from oil producing nations is the dollar. And so if, if France buys oil from Saudi Arabia, they have to pay in dollars, even though neither of them have the dollars, their currency. And that was because of deals that U.S. made with OPEC back in the 70s. And they've been able to enforce that with, with you know, the trade deals and military kind of protection, things like that. It's, it's basically wow. like a gangster. It's like a global gangster thing. That's and, what Balaji said. It was more about the military protection. Yeah, pretty much. And, and so, we, yeah, we basically said, okay, Saudi Arabia, you'll you'll basically be under the umbrella of U.S. protection. We'll we'll protect the supply lines, like the the shipping lanes and things like that. And but you have to just uh, sell your oil in dollars, and then whenever you get those dollar surpluses, go ahead and re- reinvest them in the treasuries. Uh, and that worked for a while because the U.S. was the biggest importer of oil and and commodities in general. And we basically, you know, we had we were a very large force. But over time, as we've seen the rest of the world grow, the United States percent, you know, the, the global percent of GDP that the United States can, uh, makes up dropped from something like 35% down to like 20%, which is still big, but it's, it's, a, it's hard to kind of have that global lock on oil when you're, you know, roughly half the size of you know, the global GDP that you used to be. And now China is the biggest importer of, of commodities. Uh, and so that, that's kind of posing an issue. And so we've seen, for example, you know, that's where you get into kind of like military stuff where we've had some smaller nations try to price oil in dollars in the past, and it, it hasn't really worked out for them. <laughs> they, they tend to get invaded or, you know, and then they go quickly go back to, to pricing in dollars. But starting a couple years ago, Russia made the move where they said, okay, one, we're going to sell all of our treasuries. Uh, so we're going to de-dollarize. Uh, and so they, you know, their central bank invests heavily in, in gold and euro denominated assets. And then they also said, we're going to start selling oil predominantly in euros. And so they, they've been increasing their sales to Europe in, in euros and also to China in euros, uh, as well as some of their local currencies as well. And they've been, and going back to India, they've been having like oil and, and arms deals where they actually managed to sell some of that in rubles. And so we, we're basically seeing do, uh, Russia kind of lead that that trend. And now, of course, we're seeing China, you know, accelerate their digital currency initiative they're, they're now the world's largest trading partner with most countries around the world. And so, of course, when you have nations like that that, that can't be attacked, that can't really be physically threatened, uh, do that, that's a much more credible change to the system than we've seen in the past. And so that that's where you get trade wars, you get sanctions, you get things like that. But there's really not a ton that can be done about it. And and actually, I, I've argued in my, in my piece that you know, the, the United States eventually needs to turn away from the system too, because the United States, even though some people in the United States are benefiting from the current system, many people in the United States have actually been harmed by the system because in some ways we've had we've had another type of currency war for a long time, which is basically that that most countries try to devalue their currency so they can keep running export like trade surpluses to the United States. And the United States has had a, a 50-year trade deficit. And so that basically this this could revert and kind of balance that that kind of you know structural imbalance out as the global monetary system shifts. Uh, but of course, there's going to be interesting changes along the path. It's it's never going to be a smooth ride. Has gold ever? Uh, sorry, has oil ever been settled in gold? Um, I don't. I'm not sure. But I okay. mean, you, you can go back to like for example, Luke Groman would make the argument that Russia's basically been selling oil for gold for years now because what they do is as soon as they they get the the dollars or the euros they they just plow that into gold on their central bank mm-hmm. balance sheet and so uh you know the 
you can have countries that certainly settle in, in things that are other than dollars or treasuries. Uh, but, you know, and, and prior to this current system, we had the Bretton Woods system where the dollar was backed by gold. And that was that was a different way of, of settling trade. And so indirectly, yes, you had oil settled in gold back then. So I guess I guess some people are looking forward and thinking, well, will we ever settle oil in Bitcoin? Um, I guess it's too volatile right now, which is probably one of the reasons why. You, am, I, am I thinking the reason that Russia settled in the euro is because it's still a stable currency? And still a widely accepted currency. Well, a couple of reasons. One is it's it's uh, a really big trading partner for Russia. I mean, right. Russia's Russia provides something like forty percent of Europe's natural gas. I, I forget the exact number, but it's it's a, a very significant percentage, uh, and so that's a very big trading partner for them. And it's you know it's the second largest currency in terms of of global reserves around the world. And so basically, they said we don't want to do the dollar, but we'll do we'll do euros. And I mean, the tricky thing with Europe is that there's no uh, euro bond, right? So uh, basically, countries never hold their reserves in cash, or at least mostly they don't. Uh, Russia actually did. They held some of their reserves in physical cash because they were concerned about sanctions. But for the most part, they hold it in sovereign bonds. They they take the, the the surpluses they get and they reinvest in sovereign bonds. So they you know reserves consist of treasuries. They consist of of you know all these different sovereign bonds. Uh, but Europe has no central bond issuance. You have to invest in in German bonds. You have to invest in in you know France's sovereign bonds. You and then they they generally don't want to invest particularly in Italy's sovereign bonds. And so uh, that kind of limits some to some extent uh, how far Europe can go as a global reserve currency. But especially for Russia, it's been appealing for them along with gold. Right. Is that because the because essentially the euro is just a it's like a monetary union? Is it? Am I correct in this? I heard this before. It's a monetary union, but not fiscal union. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of sorry, this is just some stuff I'm learning about. So these this for example these French bonds. Um, what what is it, how do they actually handle their situation? Because if they're not if they don't actually manage their own currency, are they in a, like a slightly different position? Because like in the US, where you've talked about, they can pay back in nominal terms, but they can also drive up inflation, so the you know, purchasing power is lost, but they actually they can still pay it back. What do the countries in Europe do? Because they don't actually control the money printer. This is a this has been a critical issue for Europe because the United States, Japan, uh, UK, uh, they're all monetary sovereign, uh, whereas Europe they're they're not, and so uh, that's one of the reasons we've seen. Uh, you know, if you look at fiscal spending as percentage of GDP around the world during this pandemic. Europe has not been able to do as much because they have to agree with each other. Mm. Uh, Italy, Italy can't just say, we're going to do what the United States did and come out with a 15% of GDP fiscal stimulus, and then we're going to do it again next year. Uh, and we're going to basically have our central bank buy a lot of it as needed because Italy is not monetary sovereign, and neither is Germany, neither is France. And so, of course, some of the, the countries that have, that have you know, lower debts or, or better fiscal positions, uh, they, they don't want to accommodate some of the things that some of the, say, the Southern European countries need. And it, it's been a tricky environment because, you know, the monetary union in some ways has hurt Italy more because if they had like a weaker currency, their exports would be stronger. And so it's really kind of benefited the export powerhouse of, of Germany uh, at, at kind of the expense of some of the Southern European countries. And it's kind of just a flawed union at the current time. It's a it's a pretty tricky thing for them to do because it's it's one of those things where it's based more on politics than on kind of, you know, sound policy. So because of that, 
has the euro essentially strengthened against the dollar? Because I'm just trying to look it up now. I'm trying to imagine the euro is probably strengthened against the dollar at this time because they haven't had the money printer go, you know, as the dollar has. Over the over the past year, yes, we've had the dollar yeah. uh, weaken weaken versus many currencies, including uh, the euro. And the euro runs very large uh, current account surpluses, uh, and so you know it's it's you know it, it kind of has that floor that keeps it pretty strong. Uh, but you kind of get that trade-off. And so, you know, if they do less fiscal stimulus, you should get a stronger currency. But then also if if due to less fiscal stimulus, if they if their economy kind of stagnates, that can that can make people maybe not want to invest too heavily into them. And that can kind of weaken the currency. And so you're you kind of get that middle of the road uh mm. currency strength where it's neither it's neither weakening nor is it strengthening too much. Okay. It's um it's interesting here. So we've we've kind of got our exit plan for coming out of the COVID crisis from our government. Um, thankfully, the kids go back to school in eleven days, which I can't wait for. Uh, I love my kids, nice. but um, uh, yeah, homeschooling isn't the the most fun. Um, and then you know we've got this gradual opening up of uh, the economy, uh, non essential shops, so hairdressers, gyms, and stores will be opening up uh, a few. I think it's April the tenth. I think it is. And then in May, we've got uh, entertainment venues. And then I think by June, they're looking to have most of the economy opened up. And they're even talking about, you know, you won't have to wear masks indoors by June, July. Um, there's a big festival in the UK called the Reading Festival, end of August. Uh, we have Reading and Leeds. They said they're going ahead. They said these festivals are happening. So it feels like over the next six months, um, we're going to get back to some level of normality with any hope. There's this general kind of like, even though we're still in lockdown, Lynn, there's this general glow of happiness around people. I had to pop in and see a friend earlier and just drop something off at her store. And, you know, both of us were like, you know, it feels like the end of the road here. So are you expecting like a bounce back to the economies? I mean, a lot of businesses I know have struggled. A lot have gone under. Some are going to need finance and loans. Um, some of the ones that have gone under are going to be replaced by news businesses. But are you expecting some kind of economic boost? Uh, yeah, my overall base case is for for pretty high nominal GDP uh, in 2021 uh, because you're coming off really weak base effects. So when you do year over year comparisons, uh, it can be pretty high. Uh, and then also, yeah, you have that surge of of kind of there's certain types of demand that are pent up demand and certain ones that are not. And so, for example, restaurant demand is an example where for the most part, it's not pen up because you can't go back and replace all the the meals you missed, right? You can go and you can have a couple extra meals for a few weeks and people get that out of their system. But some of that economic activity was lost forever. Whereas like travel, for example, you know, might you might have like people want to say, I want to take two trips instead of one trip this year. You might have, you know, more more kind of travel like that. Uh, and so overall, I you know, I do think that we're likely to see kind of a spike up. And that's that's when it gets interesting because you did, you know, countries around the world did these massive fiscal stimulus packages uh, that bonds were in large part bought by the central banks. And so that directly increased the broad money supply. And so when you have that kind of, you know, but it's been offset by a reduction in economic activity, a reduction in velocity of that money. So if you have an uptick in economic activity and velocity with that increased monetary, uh, you know, kind of amount of money in the system, that's when you can kind of get a, like an inflationary spike. And of course, countries did it at different rates. So the UK increased their money supply by something like 10% year over year, whereas over in the States, we 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 boosted our money supply by 25% year over year. We've been the we've been like the cowboys of the the money printing. And so yeah, we'll probably see it at different rates around the world, but it's it's gonna be fun to watch. 
So with that, how does that affect, um, you know, what kind of things, measures are you going to be looking at in the economy? Um, what is going to be the impact on the markets? What do you think? I mean, the, the strange thing is, it, uh, you know, you still track the S&P and it's still performing very well. Um, are we expecting that to continue? Or is it going to be this really weird thing that the, the economy is going to come out of a, gl- a glut and then we're going to see like the S&P drop or something? That's actually quite possible. And and so one of the things we're watching now over the past week is we're seeing a rotation. So the overall index is kind of, it's, it's sagging a little bit, but under the surface, you're actually seeing really big moves, which is you're seeing some of the unprofitable, extremely highly valued tech stocks that have done extraordinarily well in 2020. I mean, a lot of them were up 100%, 200%, 300% year of year. Uh, a lot of those are are sagging really hard, whereas you have things like bank stocks or energy stocks surging. And of course, energy is surging because energy prices are going up uh, because you know we've we've reduced supply and demand starting to kind of return a little bit, and so they're liking that. And with bank stocks, you know they benefit from a steeper yield curve. So when the when the when the ten year treasury, the third year treasury, when they go uh, up, uh, banks like that because they I mean their business model is based on borrowing at the short end of the curve and lending at the long end of the curve, and because also you know a higher you know, 10-year, 30-year bonds, that should, uh, you know, keep up mortgage rates and things like that. And so you're seeing that that rotation from basically growth to value, uh, you know, things like banks and energy. And so if you were to get higher and higher yields, uh, that should continue that rotation. And, you know, one of the things about the United States market is that our, our S&P 500 is very kind of tilted towards those growth tech names. And so it, it tends to be kind of worse for us if we have that rotation Whereas UK, if you look at the top, you know, it's like energy companies and commodity companies and 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 some financials and and things like that. It's a little bit more value oriented, and that that's generally a rotation we're seeing. And so it's kind of be, going to be interesting to see. Uh, Bitcoin has you know kind of it's traded more like these growth stocks, and so uh, it'll really kind of throw people off if it continues its its kind of post uh, having. Uh, bull run because all these you know kind of bears are thinking okay now the bitcoin trade's done it's going to roll over like the growth stocks but if it starts trading like a commodity and keeps going up that's going to throw a lot of them off wow okay so we should get into bitcoin because it is it's been wild lynn um let's start with the trillion dollar market cap and there's something i want to ask you so uh, a while back i spoke to um travis kling and he said to me, the thing about Bitcoin is there's a lot of people who can't invest in it because the market cap's too small. It's too risky. Once you get over a trillion dollars, this actually opens it up to more investors. How much can you tell me about that? Well, that's, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is some of them, you know, for a while, until we're getting these kind of institutional custody solutions, they couldn't invest in it even for regulatory reasons, regardless of size. And so I, I talked to investment managers that were like, yeah, we looked about self-custodying, but we, 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 you know, we can't self-custody investments. And so, you know, for example, they were using GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, as their, as their way to do it. Uh, and, but now we have the build-out of Fidelity. We have uh, some of these other, uh, like NYDIG or, or SkyBridge, uh, some of these other uh, institutions that are coming out with institutional-grade products. Uh, it, it's basically the on-ramps for institutions to put it in are much easier. Uh, and so, yeah, we basically have been in a situation where, you know, liquidity has been an issue. Even if, even if you were going to invest and you want, if you're running a hundred billion dollar fund and you want to put a 1% position in, you, they're worried that that $1 billion purchase is going to move the market. And of course, back when 
when Bitcoin was a hundred billion dollars, and then you know the the percentage of that that was actually liquid was was lower, that would move the market. And now we're seeing that that for example, Michael Saylor can do billion dollar purchases, and you know he probably moves the market a little bit, but you, you're not really sure. Like you're kind of watching it, and you're assuming he's probably in there buying, but he as long as they they do it smart and they spread their purchases out, uh, it's basically a liquid enough market that you can absorb billion dollar purchases now, uh, and so. Basically, that that you know that trillion dollar threshold and that that liquidity threshold uh, that really kind of does make it a macro asset, uh, and so uh, it's basically somewhat normalized. I think now over the past year, uh, for some of these institutions to have a a non-zero Bitcoin position, it doesn't sound like they're they're wacky. They're not going to get like uh, you know fired for even recommending it. Well, it could be the opposite. Now, I was listening to a really interesting interview with Hamish Bailey from a Ruffer. Um, and he was talking about their Bitcoin allocation, and he said, obviously, we went into the market, um, and you know, a lot of people were surprised that we were investing in Bitcoin, but we did, and we agreed to a two and a half percent allocation. But then uh, the price, you know, appreciated, so we actually uh, decreased our uh, allocation because we wanted to maintain a uh, this. I think it was around two and a half percent, which leads me to another question: If more institutions are creating this kind of, um let's say, this allocation percentage that forces them to buy or sell depending on you know, the current price. Do you think that's going to lead to a little bit more stability in the pricing or do you still think we're still going to suffer from the volatility? Well, I, my base case over time is that as it becomes a bigger and more widely held asset, that its volatility should go down. And you know, we, we haven't really seen that too much so far with, with you know, the post-having cycle drawdowns. But if you look at things like market cap versus realized cap, you know, each cycle has been, in, by that measure, less volatile than, than the one before it. And so my base case is that that would continue and that, you know, if you see more more dispersion among, uh, you know, including these institutional holdings, uh, that you're you're likely to get a little bit more stability there. And, and you know, as an example, I mean, I, I hold Bitcoin in multiple different ways. So, for example, I have, you know, the, the cold storage holding, but I also have have portfolios that that you know some of my my members and clients kind of look at it and kind of use for their own inspiration. And so, for example, in in those brokerage accounts, I'll have something like GBTC as my Bitcoin allocation, just because that's the option that's available in that sort of account. And I've done occasional trimmings to basically maintain that below a certain threshold because you know it's it's not like you know there there are people that actually follow that and I have to kind of maintain the volatility at a certain level. And so there's certainly other portfolio managers like that that are doing a similar thing where they are, they might have had a, a 5% Bitcoin allocation and then it bloomed to like 20% and they have to they have to reduce a little bit. But then on the same token, if you were to get a big sell-off, you might get some of them come in and say, okay, we got to boost up our Bitcoin allocation because we, you know, we're going to rebalance. And so if it, if it becomes that more widely held asset, it, it benefits from that rebalancing cycle. Okay, you can explain something to me that nobody's done in a way that I've been able to understand yet. Can you explain the GBTC premium to me? Uh, so GBTC is not an ETF. It's a, it's a closed-end mm. fund. And so basically, they don't uh, you know, quickly issue more shares as needed in order to maintain their, their NAV uh, premium above NAV around zero, like, a, like an ETF would. And so basically, you know, if you look at a closed-end fund... You, I, th- I think even that you need to... I'm thinking about like other people who don't know this. Can we, can we explain what happens with an ETF then? Like, can you explain yes. that like in... in uh, like on five. <laughs> sure. So I, it's probably simpler first to p- explain closed-end funds that don't do that. And so a closed-end yeah. fund, they've been around for decades. And what they'll say is, you know, okay, this manager 
is going to go ahead and buy like 20 stocks and they're going to, you know, they're going to do initial public offering and they're going to take in a, a billion dollars and they can use that billion dollars. and They're going to build a portfolio of stocks. And then they basically that portfolio now trades publicly. You can buy it's It's basically organized as a company. And so you can buy shares in that company and all that company does is hold these stocks. And what's interesting about that is that that company is not necessarily issuing more shares. They're just, you know, there's there's a certain number of shares outstanding and they hold investments in their account. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can look at all their investments and calculate what their portfolio is worth. If you if you just kind of mm-hmm. add it up, that's their that's their net asset value or NAV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the market can then price that those shares or whatever it wants. And sometimes it might it might say, okay, even though we've done the calculations. And all you know, if you if you add up all the investments that that company holds per share, it's twenty five dollars a share. But you know, we want to we want to get in on the action so much, we really like that manager, so we're going to pay twenty eight dollars a share. And so you're basically paying a premium over NAV. On the other hand, most closed end funds trade at a discount to NAV because it basically makes it so that they you know because that that fund charges a fee on the investments. And so if you if you basically trade at a discount to NAV, you're basically factoring out the um the fee essentially uh and right. so i think i know what's going on so with gbtc the fact is it's very hard for some of these people to there's no etf uh it's very hard for people to buy bitcoin so that the premium exists but just because these people want exposure exactly they're saying i'm right. willing to buy bitcoin at a 10 percent premium because i don't otherwise i can't have bitcoin because in my in my brokerage that's the only option available to me for example and that that happens with some popular funds, but yeah, it's been particularly happening with Bitcoin fund. And mm-hmm. uh, so then, of course, you get arbitrage. People come in because you know when when Grayscale issues new shares uh, to to basically buy more Bitcoin, the people that the accredited investors, like high high net worth or institutional investors that buy into that kind of launch, they get to buy in at NAV. They don't have to pay the premium. Uh, but then they have a lockup period where they can't sell the shares for six months, and then six months later they can sell them. At whatever the market price is, which is normally a, a premium, and so there's a, a been an arbitrage opportunity where someone can you know buy into a grayscale like share issuance, and then on the side they can also short Bitcoin, and so basically what they're doing is they're over that six months at the end of that trade they want to take that trade off, and they'll, they'll, they'll capture that premium spread uh, with grayscale, uh, and so that seems to be going away now. Because we've had a number of other, you know, there's more competition. Basically, we have we now have a Canadian ETF. Mm-hmm. We, we have, have uh, uh, Michael Saylor's shares. Exactly, shares. people have been, and that's why MicroStrategy was trading at a premium for a long, and still is because you know there are. I, I made this argument before. If you're running a mutual fund, you can only invest in stocks, but you happen to be, you know, privately a Bitcoiner. You, you're bullish on Bitcoin, but your job is to run this fund that can only buy stocks. What do you do? You 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 allocate to MicroStrategy. Because that's one of your ways that you can express bullishness on micro on Bitcoin within that portfolio, and so MicroStrategy also basically would trade it at essentially a premium to what it logically should. Yeah, um, but as you know, as more of those come available, I, I guess we have Tesla now. Uh, you know, we have Square, we have this Canadian ETF, as you say. I think there's I think there's even a Swedish one. I'm not sure on that. Um, I guess I guess that is the competition then, but. But I've also seen the note that the GBTC premium did it go negative for a moment? Briefly. Very briefly, yes, yeah. yeah, briefly did. When we when we had that big sell off, uh, it went negative, and so for the past couple of months, it's been it's been decreasing, uh, and uh, that's just I think because of competition. But then when you have that decreased premium, and then you get a sharp sell off, 
uh, yeah, it, it went briefly into to negative territory, which is which is interesting. Is it risky? Is there, are there any risks associated with that? I would say not many. The biggest risk would be, I mean, the the not your keys, not your keys, not your coins problem. So of you course. you have counterparty risk. I mean, I think they use Coinbase as their custodian. So you're basically you're hoping that there's not going to be an utterly massive hack or, or fraud or something like that, and you're basically trusting uh, this, you know, the security of the of that custodian. Other than that, there's not really risk. Um, but that's, I mean, that's kind of a tail risk that you know, because that they have something like twenty billion dollars of Bitcoin. Mm. That if if they were to screw up that custody, I mean, that would get that'd be a headline. <laughs> I mean, it'd be good for the rest of us, though. Yeah, pretty much. Push out the value of our Bitcoin. Next up, I talked to Lynn more about what's going on in the macro world. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, today we're kicking off with Sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin. You know what, though? These people love Bitcoin. I went over to Estonia last year to visit them. I'm going to be heading over as soon as the planes are flying to catch up with them again. They love Bitcoin. They do everything they can to support Bitcoin. They've even got Bitcoin all over Premier League football by sticking a Bitcoin logo on the front of the Southampton shirt. Very cool. Keep an eye out for that. Now, with Sportsbet, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They've got football. Of course, they've got football. So you can bet on Tottenham losing. You've got tennis, American sports, motorsports, and even esports. Every sport you can think of. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I have been using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. Now, I've told you about this. I'm increasingly running my company on Bitcoin, and uh, any of you who follow me on Twitter will have seen that I've actually had all my accounts, well, all my accounts with Lloyds Bank are about to be closed. They gave me 65 days notice. Damn them. So... The pressure is on to increasingly, even more than before, run my company using Bitcoin. And I needed a wallet to be able to do my audits at the end of each month. I mean, it's the 28th today. In a couple of days, I'm going to be doing my audits, paying the people who want to get paid in Bitcoin, getting paid by the people who want to pay in Bitcoin. And I need a wallet which allows me to do this and audit it. Now, when Exodus reached out, I had to play with a wallet. They crushed the US. I was like, well, this is easy. This is an obvious choice. So I signed up and I've started using Exodus Wallet. If you want to find out more, check it out. Please head over to exodus.com or search the Apple or Google app stores for Exodus. And lastly today, it's Casa, but never least, because it's security. And security should never be leased, especially in a bull market, especially if you are crushing it and you're making good gains on your Bitcoin. And if you haven't got your security sorted, come on, get your shit together. Now, I love Casa. It's been nearly nine months now. I've been a customer and I'm protected from my own personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. It gives me so much peace of mind. And if you want to check them out, they have a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that is only going to cost you $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig, and with Casa Diamond, which I think I'm going to upgrade to, you get their full service offering. This includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class in security. There is no better time than right now to upgrade your Bitcoin security. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. So do you think there's an ETF coming? Do you think this is also like an uh, like a signal an ETF com- is coming? Because yeah, the SEC is pretty good. I know they um I know Hester Purse is I think she's pretty keen on an ETF. Um uh, I, Jay Clayton wasn't so keen. Um but 
the fact there is an ETF in Canada that does create just put the the US slightly behind. Do, do you think that's gonna? Do you think that's like pushing, giving the SEC an incentive to reconsider this? I think so. I think the bigger Bitcoin gets, and the more that other ETFs exist, uh, you know, the harder it is for them to justify no ETF. And I mean, they're they're they can't really use the volatility argument because I mean, there are some crazy ETFs out there. There are like triple leveraged or you know triple bearish ETFs. Like there there are absolutely crazy products out there. Uh, and so a Bitcoin ETF would by no means be the most volatile ETF on the market. And so basically, it's it's just an ETF that gives uh, people exposure to. Uh, you know, a, a trillion dollar asset, a macro asset. And so it's really hard to kind of justify not having one uh, the bigger it gets. I think Kathy Woods of ARC argued mm. that $2 trillion is a threshold. But I mean, those are all estimates. I mean, maybe, you know, a trillion dollar definitely puts it on the radar. And then as you get Canada, you know, with their ETF, it basically looks increasingly silly if if the U.S. isn't allowing one. Does it? Does the Gemini Trust then become, try, become an ETF? Does it convert into an ETF? Or is it just kind of uh, well, Oh, you mean the GBTC, the Grayscale yeah. Bitcoin Trust? Sorry, uh, yeah, sorry they, not Gemini, Grayscale. They might. Yeah, they might. I think, and I don't know the full history. I think in the past, they were one of the ones that filed to become an ETF yeah. and it didn't really work out. Uh, now, I mean, I know, I mean, speaking of Gemini, I think I think they a while ago filed for an ETF. Uh, you have Vanek Vectors. They're a popular mm-hmm. ETF provider. They they filed for an ETF. So it would, you know, it would make sense for some of these, you know, either to launch an ETF or to convert to an ETF. Now, but yeah, basically, GBTC without the premium, uh, they they do have an incentive to basically convert to an ETF, and it's also going to put increasing fee pressure on them because you know Grayscale I think charges something like two percent, uh, whereas if you look at Skybridge, uh, you know uh, the Mooch, the Scaremoochies yeah, fund, uh, they they charge lower, and so over time you should get more and more competition to basically push down these fees. Yeah, it's funny you say that because while we we're talking, the Mooch just texted me. What's he want? <laughs> It's telling me there's some huge news. Stone Ridge filed with the SEC to become the first open-ended mutual fund to buy Bitcoin. Oh, there you go. I mean, there you go. basically, the, the, the bigger this asset is, the more that these normal products should be, you know, exist. Right, so let me ask you about this. So Stone Ridge filed with the SEC to become a first open-ended mutual fund. What does that mean? What's an open-ended mutual fund? Uh, so those are actually, in, in some ways, it's kind of old. I mean, that's that's what, if you were looking at, say, what Vanguard was doing for a long time, you'd have these open-ended mutual funds. When you think of a classic mutual fund, like you can put money into uh, this this kind of, you know, actively managed, uh, or in, in Vanguard's case, passively managed fund, uh, before you had the emergence of ETFs in the 90s, that was the classic fund. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you had mutual funds and you had hedge funds for, for credit investors. Uh, and so over time, because ETFs are, I mean, one is they're they're you know publicly traded, and two they're more tax efficient. Uh, and so we've seen kind of a shift from mutual funds to ETFs. Although mutual funds are still a much bigger market, it's just that it's a it's like a giant melting ice cube that's kind of moving more towards ETFs. There's actually even funny cases where there are mutual funds that under the surface just hold an ETF because it's more tax efficient. Uh, it, it's funny how that works, but basically. Uh, that's a, another kind of traditional vehicle that 401ks and and all these kind of big investment pools of money can invest into. So yeah, if they if they can get an open ended mutual fund, that's I mean that's powerful. That means that they, that's more brokerage access for for people that don't want to hold Bitcoin that that still want to have allocations to Bitcoin but don't want to have like a a treasure or something. Does does the ETF have to hold Bitcoin physically? Hold it. 
Uh, not necessarily. I mean, there are ETFs for commodities. Then all they hold is like futures. Right. Uh, so I mean, they need to have an allocation in some in some way. How they go about that allocation will depend on on how they file, like what what their perspective says, and then what regulators allow. It's got here. Uh, I've got the SEC filing. It says uh, seeks to generate returns by gaining exposure to the price of Bitcoin by selling put put options on Bitcoin future tra- uh, futures contracts. This strategy may also invest in pooled investment vehicles, such as registered or private funds that themselves invest in Bitcoin. Well, they're here now. Stone Ridge are part of the game. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Okay, the next thing I want to ask you about is how the hell can Michael Saylor borrow $1.05 billion at 0% interest? And how can I do the same? Well, one of the reasons he... I would like to as well... One of the reasons he's, I mean, the main reason he's able to is actually kind of the same problem where let's say you're, you're running a bond fund and you, you mm-hmm. want to, you want to have Bitcoin, you happen to be bullish on Bitcoin, but you're running a bond fund, right? So one thing you can do, so Michael Siller, what he did was basically, those are convertible notes. So if, if MicroStrategy stock price moons because it's holding Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes up to six figures or whatever the case may be, uh, you know, those uh, bonds in, in several years times can be converted to MicroStrategy stock. And so they can participate in some of the upside uh, above a certain price le- uh, threshold. And so that's basically a way of saying that for those bonds, they have virtually no downside risk other than if MicroStrategy defaults, right? So if MicroStrategy, if, if say if Bitcoin just like some tail risk happens and Bitcoin goes to zero oh, and MicroStrategy's yeah. and, and, and their cash, I mean, they still have cash flow. So they, even then they should be able to, to pay those bonds. But let's say, uh, for some reason, they can't repay the bonds. That that's basically the the tail risk those bondholders have. Uh, but on the other hand, if Bitcoin goes up a ton, they participate in some of that exposure. And so it's a slightly for them, it's a slightly more conservative way to invest in Bitcoin, where they don't get all the upside, but they also have you know some volatility downside protection, except for like the the tail risk. Uh, and uh, and so for them, if you're running a bond fund. And you have to be bullish on Bitcoin, but the only thing you can invest in is bonds. You say, well, I'll, I'll take some of these convertible MicroStrategy notes and I'll just have that as like, you know, 2% of my portfolio sitting over there. And if Bitcoin moons, then I'll outperform all other bond funds. And if it if it doesn't, then it's just, a, it doesn't matter. It's a small percentage. Yeah, Preston Pish tweeted about this. He said, this is what you can do when your balance sheet is doubling every few months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I mean, he went into this with virtually no debt and tons of cash. And so the first steps were to turn the cash into Bitcoin and then to issue debt debt against it. Uh, and so I mean, it, because he's, you know, he's hardcore bullish on it, he's willing to take that that risk. And, uh, you know, so far he's not had regulators seemingly had an issue with it. He's not really kind of run into issue. Uh, and so it's it's worked out great for him because he's been able to buy Bitcoin uh, in some ways, dollar cost averaging into it in chunks. He's putting cash flow into it and also doing these occasional bond issuances. He's million dollar cost averaging. What a baller. Um, okay, another thing I want to talk to you about is obviously Tesla. Um, I, did not, I, I did not really see it coming. Obviously, we've memed Elon Musk continually and everyone's harassed him and he's finally done it. I was still surprised. And I was still surprised how much. I mean, you look at someone like Square run by Jack Dorsey that's invested you know, 50 million and now another 170. Tesla just came, just come straight in with $1.5 billion. What did you make of this? Uh, so it's interesting because it's kind of the middle of the road play because it's not all in like Michael Saylor, 
Mm. Uh, but it was something like 10% of their cash. And, you know, it's funny because, I mean, Tesla, the reason that some investors weren't really expecting it is because Tesla doesn't really produce free cash flow. I mean, they're, they, they, they don't really make money from selling cars. They make money from selling equity. Uh, well, they make so they money from like, Bitcoin now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they've actually made more money from Bitcoin yep. than their entire history of selling cars ever. Because they've, you know, until this past year, they never really made an accounting profit. And then they finally made an accounting profit, but it's very small and it's really only based on like tax credits and stuff. Uh, and so they really kind of like cars are like a loss leader for them. And then they, what they really do is issue new shares because uh, there's always investors willing, happy to buy in. And then so they, that's how they got all their cash. And then they put some of that cash in a Bitcoin. And so it's, it's you know, it's kind of funny to see. Uh, whereas, you know, Square... Uh, they they now have something like five percent of their cash in a Bitcoin, and that I mean Square in some ways has been like the the expected model. And so when people were mm. talking about uh, corporations putting Bitcoin in the balance sheet, most people envisioned it as a small percentage of their balance sheet, and they would expect it. I mean Square was like a, a natural kind of first mover, but it was funny because we had you know MicroStrategy come out of nowhere as the actual first mover, and they went all in. But now that we're seeing things like Square and Tesla put a smaller percentage of their uh, cash into Bitcoin. That's you know that's that's the model you can perhaps see more regularly because few companies are going to go all in, but many companies might say, okay, we have cash yielding near zero, with inflation expectations rising. Uh, why would I not have a small Bitcoin hedge in case you know my cash gets you know impaired by inflation? They can hold things like Bitcoin and say, okay, if if Bitcoin goes to zero, our five percent Bitcoin position doesn't matter. Uh, but if Bitcoin goes up 10x, it's basically hedged the rest of our cash position. Well, Tesla has other risks. Like you say, I mean, it's not highly profitable. Um, but also, I was reading this morning that I think it's in, over the last year, they've done something like 13 discounts on prices, uh, reflecting they've got a potential demand issue. Um, and not unsurprising, as we're in a pandemic, Um uh, and potentially, they've even got a supply issue because I've been trying to buy my dad a car recently, and you just can't can't get a car till August. So I wonder if any of that's part to do with it as well. I mean, he's kind of a natural marketer, uh, mm. and so I mean, I I personally think that Tesla stock is very overvalued compared to you know what it's what it's worth. Uh, even taking into account future growth and some of their growth avenues, uh, I think the current price is 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 very high. And so I I personally would not invest in Tesla. Even though, for example, I had you know once MicroStrategy bought Bitcoin, I actually did invest in that uh, in one of my portfolios uh, because I had the same problem is that in that account I had no other way to hold Bitcoin, uh, and I I wanted to have that performance in that portfolio, and so one of the ways I did was I allocated to MicroStrategy, uh, whereas you know I wouldn't do it for Tesla because one, you know Bitcoin is you know their their market cap is several hundred billion dollars and Bitcoin they bought 1.5 billion of it mm. so it's a very small percentage of their market cap and two I don't like the fundamentals of Tesla compared to the the valuation whereas MicroStrategy even though I kind of didn't like the valuation I was like no nah, this is enough that I can put a small position in and let it moon and it you know it, yeah. it did but you're not going to short Tesla are you uh not but, now um I've been like you know occasionally I would I would um short it if as like a hedge uh, but then take that short off if it went above a certain price point. Uh, and so, you know, it's not, this is not a super attractive market for shorting, but I do think that a lot of these really highly valued tech stocks that are unprofitable, 
like the the kind of the ARC funds and 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 Tesla and some of these others, I do think that they could have a pretty significant price correction over the next couple of years. I think the interesting thing to think about something like Tesla um, is how I think of my little business as a microcosm. But um, I told you before that I've been holding Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Uh, my capital position now is quite interesting in that, like, if I want to grow, you know, you know, we're a team of seven now. If I want to grow beyond that, if I really wanted to ramp up, you know, I'd have a choice of always bootstrapping, uh, taking on investment and losing equity, but or, or, or I can actually use now the Bitcoin that I've got on the balance sheet. Um, my problem with that is I don't want to sell the Bitcoin ever. Um, and I'm, yeah, I did this interview recently with Jamie Leatherton, the new CEO of Hut8, uh, where she was talking about the, they use their Bitcoin, they borrow money against their Bitcoin because they don't want to sell the Bitcoin. It's more of a pristine asset. I'd be interested in a company like Tesla in the future if they need more money, whether they would consider selling their Bitcoin or just borrow against it. It would be really interesting to see. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. And, and you should get pretty low rates for that sort of borrowing. Uh, and so that I think that's an attractive model because that, that's kind of the role of, of Bitcoin as pristine collateral. And for Tesla, I mean, you know, at their current time, uh, because Bitcoin's a very small percentage of what they hold, uh, you know, I don't think they would borrow against that. But in the future, if, if you were to have Bitcoin to have like an extra zero on its price or something, uh, then that would be a much bigger uh, percentage of their assets. And so they could use that certainly as a source of borrowing if they wanted to, especially, I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, you know, I haven't checked their their credit rating recently, but I mean, I think they're still junk rated Tesla really? uh, because, but, I mean, let me check it now because until this year, they were actually a junk rated company because if you looked at the numbers, they just weren't producing income and they had debt and people were concerned about a lot of it. But because ironically, the, the stock price did so well and they were able to issue so much equity, they got a ton of cash on their balance sheet. And so it, it's been a funny thing where they, you know, Elon Musk has basically memed Tesla into solvency because the, the, the massive increase in the stock price allowed him to issue equity and get a ton of cash. And so now it's actually, he's, he's ironically improved the fundamentals of Tesla by being a really good marketer. And I so if I look up the... If I, the strategy that Jim ahead. Cramer put out yesterday for GameStop, he said they should um, issue a bunch of stock uh, and then spend the, uh, spend the income on Bitcoin. Yeah, I saw that. And, and, and follow up, yeah, Tesla's on the high end of junk rated. Right? Wow. So... It's funny because that's that's just how this year's worked. <laughs> this it's that that this that's 2020 in a nutshell in 2021. Well, 2021 has been a lot better than 2020 so far. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, a couple of things to finish out on. I did want to talk to you about the borrow and lending market. Uh the likes of BlockFi, uh, etc. But I think I'm going to save that till next month because I'm going to do an interview with Zach Prince and cover that. So I think I'm going to save that for next month. A couple of sure. things I did want to talk to you about. Um, going back to your report, which, by the way, um, I say to everyone every month, it's brilliant. I love it. I've subscribed. Subscribe. It's in the show notes. Link crushes it. It's only what, what did I pay? Like one hundred ninety nine dollars for the year. Yeah, it's so cheap, Lynn. It's too cheap. Um, go and subscribe. It's in the show notes. But uh, I've actually written something down here to, with regards to the price of Bitcoin. You're saying the higher it gets, the less asymmetric it gets. Uh, the opportunities in this cycle. And we may be in for some kind of like high volatility, lengthy consolidation. Can you talk me through that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I started uh, uh, covering Bitcoin back in 2017, like I've talked about before, back in November of 2017. And so back then I expressed concerns about the price. 
I was also concerned about the Bitcoin fork and things like that. And so I, I sat on the sidelines and, you know, it wasn't one of those like Bitcoin bears, but I also wasn't, wasn't bullish on it. And so as we had kind of improving fundamentals in 2018, 2019, like the, the, the forks were sorted out, we had the improving network effect, we had uh, institutional grade custodians, uh, you know, in April, 2020 is when I got quite bullish on Bitcoin. And then I, you know, increased bullishness up to, you know, about June and then just been super bullish since then. And so my point was that as we kind of go along this having bull market, uh, you know, people start to buy in at these higher price points. And especially, you know, a lot of retail investors tend to get caught up in the motions and they'll, you know, they're more likely to kind of go in at the top. And so there, there's kind of smart money that, that buys in early or, or like uh, leverages early, like MicroStrategy, you know, did and what you did. Uh, but then you have, there's always like these, these concerns where if you look back in 2017, there were investors that like bought Bitcoin with leverage at the top. And then there's like stories of them getting like crushed when Bitcoin falls, like, you know, however much it falls. And so my point was that, you know, as we go on this bull market, just, just be, you know, kind of cautious with the amount of risk you take on because, you know, Bitcoin back when I went long at like 6,900 was like a no brainer. I was like, this thing could go up 10 X or more. And so it's like the, the so case we're having. A pos- hmm? Exactly. Yeah. We've done much. eight. It's, it's good. We've did an eight X up yeah. to 58. Exactly. We've done eight. And so we, be, that was such an asymmetric move. But then as you get kind of deeper into this having cycle and you kind of, you know, the on-chain indicators start to get more heated, it's, it's a little bit more consensus. That's when it's like, okay, now coming in with your, your massive, you know, uh, all-in purchase or leverage purchase, it's like, just, you know, think this through, like, make sure you, you know what risk you're taking on, make sure you're willing to handle the volatility. Because last thing I want is someone, you know, coming in uh, towards the later stages of a, of a bull market. And then getting hurt, and it's not even that I necessarily think that this is later stages. I think by most indicators, it looks kind of mid-cycle, mid-mid-cycle yeah. bull run. But it basically now it's like I still think it's going higher, but it's it's less of a slam dunk than it was at like you know below ten. Yeah, uh, Will- and so Willie said to me the other day, he said it's middle of the cycle. I don't know if you get his email too, but he's like saying retail has arrived. He was seeing like twenty thousand new accounts a day or something. So that in- indicates retail's arrived, which is a signal for middle of the bull market. Although it feels weird to say middle because a lot of the people say the bull market will close out around November. So it's kind of like, well, what's going to go on between then? I've seen such a range of things. Lynn, I've seen you saying it could get choppy at around 100,000. I've seen other people talking about it going through two, three, four hundred thousand. 400,000. Other people talking about it going much higher. Well, I think that's all fair because it's, it's only been three cycles. This is like the fourth mm. cycle. And so all that's why I've been avoiding specific price targets. Uh, and so... And if anything, I give conservative price targets. Uh, and so then it meets them and, you know, it, it keeps it, you know, instead of kind of going for the high end target and then yeah. maybe or maybe not hitting it, I like to to let uh, put low hurdles and then step over them. That's kind of the Buffett uh, quote. Like he, he likes to invest by like, you know, setting low hurdles and then and then stepping over them. And so uh, that's kind of how I've approached it. And there are certainly like if you look at previous halving cycles, uh, you know the 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 peak compared to the prior peak. I mean, the last time was a twenty fold increase over the prior peak, and so if you were to get that, I mean that that's how you get to four hundred thousand, uh, even a even a ten fold, you know, level over the previous one would be at two hundred thousand. Uh, but that's where I think you, you have to be careful about extrapolating too much because the the past is just kind of a a signpost. It gives you kind of indicators, and so it it can it can overshoot or it can undershoot either of those metrics by a pretty wide margin based on what happens in macro land. So for example, yep. if we get that yield curve control, 
and if we get uh, you know a, a greater institutional adoption, that's where you can get one of those like say super cycles, like some of the the analysts are talking about. That's certainly on the table. On the other hand, if you get you know let's say you get yields rise super far, that could put a dent in the bull run, and maybe the the, the bull run tops out a little bit lower than people expect. There's there's a pretty big range of outcomes, and it's it's mainly because supply is known and demand is not. And so the best we can do is kind of monitor these indicators and say, okay, like, you know, where are the risks? Where are the opportunities? How far are we in? And I think by most indicators, you know, mid-cycle is a good way to describe it. Yeah, I've also noticed with your own work, there's an increasing amount of Bitcoin. It's like the gravity, there's like a Bitcoin gravity into your own work. Have you noticed that yourself? Do you feel you're like looking at it a lot more and writing about it a lot more? I think so, because, you know, it's, it's certainly been an area of interest that I want to address. And it's also like if you start from zero, you have to kind of build up a knowledge base and build up a research base on it. And so, for example, I have a long history with precious metals and writing about those. Uh, and so I basically have to build up a foundation of, of reading for people that they want to come in and kind of learn about this asset. Uh, and it's also a case of where, of where the money is. And so, for example, uh, you know, I was I was writing the the precious metal bull market from 2018 to 2020. Uh, and in my August 2020 newsletter, I wrote like, you know, I could see gold being choppy for a little while and I'm more bullish on Bitcoin. And so it, it's natural that I've been you know, emphasizing more on Bitcoin because that's that's the cycle that's been doing well over the past uh, several months. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the place that's been a source of alpha. Uh, and so, you know, I think it, it's kind of it goes in cycles. Like if you were to have a Bitcoin bear market at some point. Uh, I probably would write about it somewhat less, even though I would still like if there's a topic I wanted to discuss, I would like I was I was writing about gold back in a bear market uh, and things like that. Well, I, when your report, when I get my email in that uh, your latest reports out, I almost scroll down to the bottom for the Bitcoin bit first. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah, I know that there, there's certainly people that, that like those segments. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Well, listen, always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I always learn so much with you, Lynn. It's amazing. Um, anything else you're looking at? Anything else you want to talk about before we go? I think those are the main things. I'm really, I guess the, the single key thing I'm watching from a macro perspective is what happens with some of these inflation numbers uh, in the next several months as we as we kind of gradually reopen mm -hmm. uh, and as some of these, uh, you know, and, and then see how the bond market behaves and then see how central banks respond to their bond markets misbehaving. And because that can really set the tone and kind of set the math, I guess more specifically, of what happens. And so higher bond yields put pressure on tech stocks, uh, you know, potentially put pressure on gold, maybe Bitcoin, we'll see. Uh, whereas something like yield curve control is like rocket fuel for all of these inflationary assets. If they if they try to suppress yields while inflation moves up this summer, uh, that's, I mean, that's rocket fuel for all these kind of scarce assets. Amazing. Okay, tell people where to sign up to your newsletter, please. Uh, so I'm at lindalden.com. Most of my content's free. I also have a low-cost service. Uh, people can check that out. I'm also on Twitter at lindaldencontact. Definitely check it out. I'll put it in the show notes. Go and sign up. It's well worth the $199 a year. Um, each report is like a, a, a book. So um, I highly recommend it. Lynn, I'll see you in a month. You take care. Uh, as I said, I always love talking to you. Yep, you too. Honestly, how good is Lynn Alden? Smashed it as always. I love recording with Lynn. She's so amazing. I learned so much from her in every session. So obviously it was great to get into all the Bitcoin stuff and hear Lynn's take on the market and, and what passing a trillion dollar market cap would mean for Bitcoin. But actually the part of the interview I enjoyed most 
people's learning about the sovereign bond market and the impact that this is having on the stock market at the moment. And literally, I would say like 10 minutes, 15 minutes after we recorded, Lynn pinged me on Twitter because her article broke on Zero Hedge where the bond market had broken. Now, this is exactly what I want to get from these monthly shows. As the bond market, look, it's not something I understand or I'm aware of. And, you know, having Lynn lay it out and explain it to me is really useful. It helps me understand the wider macro picture. So I hope that's good for you as well. I hope you enjoyed that too. Anyway, thanks for listening and thanks to Lynn for coming on. If you do want to reach out to me, hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Don't send me any weird shit. I get some really weird emails sometimes. Please don't send me any weird shit. But if you do, and if you do reach out to me, I will get back to you as soon as possible. If you want to support the show, do me a favor. Head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. Hopefully. But you might think it's shit and leave me a one-star review. Either way, thank you. Well, thank you more if it's five stars. But please do that. And also, head over to defiance.news. We've got a couple of interesting things up there at the moment. Our most recent show, Hacking the Brain, is great. It's with our new producer, Edwina Stott. Go and check that out. It's an amazing show. Also, the trailer is up for our new series, Everyone Loves Britney, which is all about Britney Spears' conservatorship and actually about the wide issue of conservatorship. It's going to be a very interesting series. Also, go to neveredit.com. You can sign up to my newsletter. And, yeah, have a great weekend. And I'll see you on Sunday with an amazing show with Shinobi, all about nodes. Love you all. See you all soon. 